we were having to just plan for operating the business on a shoestring, then figure out how we're going to fund the business from there on. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by serial entrepreneur James Mishrecki, the founder of a popular skincare brand, Skin and Me, and sustainable consumer goods startup, Life Supplies. James has been on an impressive entrepreneurial journey, having exited his first startup, Competitor Monitor, in his 20s. Now he's focusing his energy into creating two £1 billion plus brands in his 30s. I'm sure many of you will have come across Skin and Me before, so I'm really looking forward to learning more about James's experience of building the brand and his latest venture life supplies, plus what he thinks the future of entrepreneurship holds. So please join me in welcoming the brilliant James Mishraki to the show. Hi, James. How are you? Welcome to 40 Minute Mental. Hey, great to be here. Good stuff. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And we always like to start our 40 Minute Mentor episodes with a few quickfire questions just to warm you up. So could you please finish the following sentences after me? Number one, I grew up wanting to be an entrepreneur. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Although when I was young, I used to say a businessman. Okay, nice. Well, do you know why you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Where, where did that come from? Good question. I grew up in a traditional family. My dad was a doctor. My brother became a doctor. And so I really booked the trend. But I think I just always had a pretty contrarian perspective. And I always wanted to do things a little bit alternatively. And so it was just exciting to me. And I started hustling in school, selling music discs and whatever I could get my hands on to make some money from. So I just got a rush from from that. Nice. No, there aren't many people that actually say entrepreneur in answer to that question. So it's refreshing that you knew that so early on. The last time I cried was when? My dog died. Oh, yeah. I mean, very understandable. It happens. Um, it does. It does. Yeah. Our neighbor's dog died not too long ago. And I mean, the whole street was in mourning. It was horrendous. Well, I'm sure lots of people can relate to that. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? It would probably be to have some sort of mandatory introduction to entrepreneurship in school. I think that I personally didn't get any introduction to it. And I think that the new generation has the most potential. And I think that they should be inspired at a young age by experienced entrepreneurs, they should have the ability to do some, I don't know, whether it's a, a short module or something like that, just to dip their toe in the water and even try setting up a business. It doesn't actually have to be a real, you know, a real operation. But yeah, I just think that there's a missed opportunity there in um, getting the next generation, you know, exposed to what it takes to be an entrepreneur and to realize that it's a viable path. And also the risk sort of tolerance is, you know, when you're young, when you're fresh out of school or fresh out of uni, you've got the least to lose. Very true. I'd be 100% behind that. I don't know whether that's something uh, we can sort of lobby uh, in government, or, but I think that'd be incredible. I've won, like yourself, came from my parents were teachers. I had no real entrepreneurial sort of inspiration directly uh, when I was growing up. And um, I wish I'd have known it was a path earlier. There's probably lots of great entrepreneurs that haven't ever become entrepreneurs because they just didn't know it was the path for them. So I think that's a great answer. Final quick fire question. My biggest failure to date is? 
my word. This is really like exposing yourself on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we want to go deep early, James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. I have tried so many business ideas that I've honestly lost counts that I put money and time and energy into that never amounted to anything. One that is um, maybe the most, in hindsight, embarrassing one is when I was much younger, I had this idea called the VIP Valentine. And the idea was that, and this was in the like early days of social media, so it was sort of capitalizing on that. The idea was that on Valentine's Day, you would book the VIP Valentine to show up at, say, your partner's place of work to serenade them with a song and capture it on video and upload it to social. And it's like, it's a joke, right? So it's, it was almost like bringing candid camera into the social age. And I guess the failure part of it is that many, many, many years on to this day, the VIP Valentine is still waiting for a booking. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, my wife would be mortified if I did that for her, but I kind of see why you thought of it. I love that. Well, thank you, James. I already feel like we've got a good insight into you from those quick questions, but I'd love to dig deeper into the career now. And you had a really unique start to your career as a professional poker player, which is a, a first for this podcast. So can you tell us a bit more about that time of your life, how you got into it, and what led you from being a poker player to founding your first business? I played poker in school for the first time, and I just loved it. I love the rush of when you're bluffing. It's a really weird feeling, poker, because you have to teach yourself to mute your emotions, which is not a natural thing to do. And I always just found it fascinating. And so I got very plugged into the poker world. after. Well, I used to play through university just as a, as a hobby. Always loved it. Used to then spend a lot of time in the forums and was trying to improve my game with coaching and would be a proper nerd with other poker nerds and we would spend hours and hours dissecting hands and strategy and the mathematics and it was rewarding to work on your game because you could see the benefits of it and I guess to call yourself a professional poker player you just need to have no job and just do nothing but play poker so <laughs> you know it's a pretty isolated life in many ways it's can seem from the outside like it's very glamorous but it's a complete and utter like emotional roller coaster and it really teaches you discipline it's a very humbling game so i played for a couple of years when i was in the thick of it i thought that i wanted to play for the long long term but i'm delighted that i stopped playing full time when i did because really what i get my like fulfillment from is like doing something really impactful and building products with really smart people and you know as much as i now love playing to be honest here at my flat i post i host a, a monthly poker game and it's like my most fun evening of the month it's great as a hobby <laughs> now that my livelihood doesn't depend on it but yeah it gets a little bit damn repetitive just playing cards all day and you don't get much social interaction fair enough but well, you mentioned you still play poker now and i think you said before that you think there's lots of transferable skills from poker for founders. So can you just elaborate on that a bit more? And why should any founders listening start playing the game? Yeah, gosh, it's like I've become the bad influence to entrepreneurs. You you know, go to the casino. Um, to be clear, I do not encourage table games. Uh, you can't win at table games. But poker in the long run is not a game of luck. And I think that it teaches you resilience because it's a complete roller coaster. It is very humbling, like I said, because every poker player at some point gets quite cocky because they've had things go their way. And before you know it, in a heartbeat, you're 
not just back to square one, you're in the red. And so it's a bit like, you know, running a startup. Hey, I raised some money. I'm, I'm, I'm amazing. I'm on, on top of the world. And then before you know it, you could be struggling to keep the business alive. Also, m- much like being an entrepreneur, you can read all the theory, you can go to business school, but I really feel like you learn 100x more just by in poker playing or in entrepreneurship doing. And so experience outweighs theory, just like being a founder. And also with poker, you can really get influenced by the short-term variance that the game has because you can feel like the whole world is against you because you could make all the right plays and you just lose, 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 lose. But you have to realize that in the long run, variance will play out and probability will be on your side if you do the right stuff in the long run. And the same can happen in a, in startups. You know, you could do the right stuff. This timing might be slightly wrong and certain things outside of your control go against you. But if you keep at it and you continue making like high quality decisions in the long run, you will succeed. And I think it's the same in, in both games, basically. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really interesting. No, thank you very much. And you had a successful start to your entrepreneurial career. Your first startup competitor to monitor a bootstrap retail intelligence SaaS startup uh, you exited in 2018, which is, is, is incredible. So can you share, I guess, particularly for any first time founders listening, what were your most important um, lessons from that startup? And can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to ultimately achieve that exit? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what I was passionate about when I was that young. And you learn by doing, like I said. And so I was basically going to do anything at that point if I found co-founders. And so I went into business with two co-founders that were a bit older than me. So they had more experience. And in that business, I built up all of the foundational experience that that you need. I learned how to sell. I learned how to manage a digital product. Uh, I built and managed teams, both a remote technical team and an in-house team in the UK. Ultimately, I was misaligned to my co-founders who essentially wanted a lifestyle business there. And to be honest, I probably stuck around a bit too long in that business before eventually pulling the trigger to like relocate to London and start a new company. But it taught me all of the, I guess, core skills that you need. And what we didn't do well in that business is differentiate. You know, it became a crowded market. We didn't really have defensibility. So the business had a limit to the amount of value it could ultimately create. And I wasn't prepared to spend another five years of my life at it. So yeah, I sold my equity in the end. I guess, you know, how did I achieve the exit? I mean, if you create something of value, you can find buyers, basically. So we had created some value, but we hadn't created like a breakout unicorn success. And so I picked what I feel was like the right time to offload my shareholding in the business. It's still going today. And yeah, I think that it's interesting. We bootstrapped that business. I almost used to view it as a badge of honor to have raised no money. And I'm certainly not again, I mean, heck, if you can build a business with raising no money and create loads of value, go for it. But in reality, I feel in general, it can slow you down. And I just don't have time to waste. So I've focused on raising external funding for each of my ventures since then. Yeah. And and it sounds like you went straight into your next founder gig with Skin and Me. And I'm sure lots of our listeners will have come across it. But do you mind sharing a little bit about where the inspiration came from for the business and how it works for those that don't know it? Yeah. So I fell into the beauty industry through one of my now board members who runs a PE fund with a big footprint in beauty. It's a very attractive category. It's got a 
high gross margin on average. It's got high average order values. It's got low return rate. And there's this concept called the lipstick effect, which really speaks to the resilience of the beauty industry in that even in times of real hardship, like in times of war, women will still buy lipstick because it gives them self-confidence and that's something they won't compromise on. So as Phil and I were getting exposed to the beauty industry, we realized there was this trend in personalized skincare. And also, the more people, the more customers that we spoke to, we were realizing people were fed up of stuff just not working. And so we had this idea, which we call Mr. and Mrs. Oliver. And actually, that is still to this day, the limited company name of Skin and Me. And we had this theory that we could test out this personalized service of recommending skincare products to individuals. So we built out this site, people would complete a set of questions. And we had a skincare expert, make a recommendation, which we printed out, put on this beautiful letter, and we sent it in the post to people with their recommended products and some little sample pots. And the idea was that you would receive it, you'd read your letter, you'd be like, wow, great, this is just made for me. And you would use the sample pots for a week. And if you liked the products, you'd keep them, we'd charge you. If you didn't like the products, you'd send them back to us and we wouldn't charge you a penny. And what I had to do, well, you know, I just became the sort of de facto sample pot manager. And so I used to have to run to Oxford Street from our little office in Soho, you know, every day for a while and get these sample pots filled. And I got banned from Debenhams Beauty Hall as a result, because they used to just be like, you've been coming in here day after day, like, and I ran out of excuses. I'm pretty good at giving excuses and swerving that stuff. But it, it had run its course. And ultimately, what we realized was that that business model doesn't work because you have to keep stock of like every brand, really. And you don't own the brand, so you don't have the control, you don't have the margin. And also, the customer can just sign up, get the recommendations. And why do they need to stick with you? They could just go elsewhere and get them cheaper on Amazon or Space NK or something. So what we did was take the learnings of, okay, people really value this personalized service. And you know they just wanted to talk to their skincare expert all the time. But we need a more viable business model. And through just lots of iteration and customer development, we realized that what really works is medical grade ingredients. And if we could layer that with personalization and the access to a skincare expert, that would be a really compelling proposition that you currently can't get anywhere else. And so that is what started the journey of what is now Skin and Me, where you know, we wrote handwritten letters to 250 of the UK's like 650 dermatologists in order to find our first consultant dermatologist to come on board. And so it was just a journey from there. We raised some pre-seed money from an experienced investor. And we, you know, I think in December 2018, you know, I was basically subletting desks in our little Soho office to make money. And then nine months later, we had over a million pounds in the bank. And so everything sort of started to level up pretty damn quickly. Once we realized we've cracked what is a really untapped opportunity that could solve a problem for a large group of people with real defensibility. It's amazing. It's an amazing business. Moving into D2C from your previous industry, a SaaS-based business is a very different, like that's a big change. What was the most difficult part to get to grips with when it comes to D2C? And, and, and what were some of the challenges you had to face, particularly in those sort of early years? 
Well, yeah, coming from software, physical products are a lot harder to MVP. You can't MVP a physical product in the way you can software because you have to commit to capex or tooling costs or big minimum order quantities. So just manufacturing and the physicality of products in general was completely different to pure play software. Other challenges were things like creating a brand. So yes, in my B2B SaaS company, we had a brand, but there wasn't a ton of thought had gone into it. And so, and I also didn't really know what it took to build a brand. I thought you just go into Upwork and buy a logo and then you have a brand. So that was quite a journey. Also, another challenge was hiring a lot of people pre-launch in a very short amount of time was quite new to me. Also, raising over 8 million pounds, considering I'd never raised any money before, was also a challenge. And just the the ongoing challenge in any of these companies is basically designing an amazing customer experience from the online digital flow to the packaging to the service. So there's just a lot more to think about when it's not just a digital experience, but it's also physical. But you know, if you get it right, you can achieve software margins in D2C and you can build a strong moat. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I'm sure there's some DC founders listening that will uh, benefit from that or are going through similar sorts of challenges at the moment. You mentioned fundraising and 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 Skin and Me has grown significantly. You mentioned the, the large amounts of money that you've raised, even pre-launch. So can you share a little bit about that experience as a whole, particularly that first time fundraising? What were some of the learnings there? And yeah, just a bit more about or any tips for anyone that might be going through that process at the moment. I'm not... A- huge believer in the whole raise a small amount of money and do an MVP and then raise a little bit more. I think that if you're going to commit a minimum of five, but most likely 10 plus years of your life to building a company, you want to set yourself up with the best possible chance of winning. And so in order to do that, you need a really big vision. You need a lot of capital and you need to be able to recruit the right talent. And so I think that if you focus on just raising a little bit and getting stuck, well, actually, just to zoom out for a second, you need complete conviction that there is a huge TAM and you can build defensibility around the business. If you don't have those two things, then that's a problem, right? But if you do have complete conviction in those two things and you can convince other people that you have a huge TAM and a defensible business model, then you should focus on getting amazing people to join your journey before you go out and just raise enough to do an MVP, in my opinion. And so the way to do that, the way that we did it was raise just a couple of hundred K from this experienced pre-seed, uh, angel investor as a pre-seed round. And the only reason we raised that money was to give us a bit of buffer for six to nine months to recruit a high quality team to then go out and raise the proper funding round to then launch the business. And so the other way we could have done it was, you know, raise 500k and build a compromise proposition because we would have been almost running out of money and sort of hire some fractional people, but not full time people. So if you want to do it properly, get great people on board, focus on doing that, focus on building an amazing plan, then go out and raise enough money to do it properly. And so that's not the general advice in the market. But I do think that you kind of need to do the opposite of what everyone else does to get different results to everyone else. And also, I've always wanted to raise enough to not think about fundraising for a while and just lay the foundations early on for the business, for the business to scale. Yeah, no, great advice. And I I mean, so many founders I talk to are fundraising consistently for years. And 
I mean, it's so difficult to focus fully on the business if, if all you're doing is fundraising. So I think there's a lot of sense in what you said there of, of raising a large enough round that you can fully focus on building the best possible business. That's great advice. Thanks, James. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness, and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 Minute Mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 Minute Mentor. I know you've now moved into a chairman role at Skin and Me to focus on your, your new venture, Life Supplies. So can you tell us a bit more about the mission of the business and how that journey's been so far? Yeah, I mean, I've always just had a problem with the personal care category. I think that, first of all, coming from the beauty industry, I've always found it a bit strange that in beauty, people, they love the products they use. It thrives on novelty and newness. They tell their friends about them. They post them on Instagram. They're passionate advocates of those brands. In the personal care industry, you might use these products intimately twice a day. But when's the last time you posted on Instagram or told your friends about your toothpaste or deodorant or shampoo or loo roll or something like that? There are some challenger brands here and there that have done started to change that a bit and brought a bit more emotion and excitement to certain subcategories within personal care. But in general, it's not really changed over decades. And the biggest players are in the top 10 biggest plastic polluters on the planet. And so at Life Supplies, we want to pull the plug on bathroom plastic in the UK, but we want to get people into what we call good rhythm. And so that means getting out of that bad routine of buy, dispose, bin, repeat, and get them into the good rhythm of buy once and refill forever. So we design lifetime bottles for people that they can refill through our service with paper-based refills. And all of our bottles are designed for your bathroom to look great. They're not designed for a supermarket shelf, so you don't have to hide them away when guests come around. And the whole idea is that you don't have to run to the shop anymore. And so we build out your refill cadence and we send you your refills on a schedule that suits you. And so the reality is no one really enjoys shopping for personal care that much. It's not that exciting. You might enjoy going to the supermarket to shop for your dinner for Friday night, but to shop for your you know, mouthwash or shampoo, it's kind of a functional purchase. And so we want to eradicate that from your day-to-day. And most people don't have the time to be more sustainable. They want to be, and we've done so much custom development on this, people feel guilty about not being more sustainable, but it's a hassle or they've got to compromise on performance or something like that. So we're going after a pretty new segment of the market, which is like the mainstream customer that wants to maintain the performance of the high street brands they've been using, but wants to be more sustainable. So we're not going 100% natural with everything. you know. And an example would be our antiperspirant, which is basically designed for the 30 million people in the UK that use antiperspirant and want to be more sustainable, but they're not ready to go to a 100% natural deodorant, which won't stop them from sweating. And so we kind of meet them in the middle. And if we don't create propositions like that, they're going to continue. They're, not, they're never going to use natural deodorant. Trust me, we have surveyed endless amounts of these people. They need to have the same performance they have now. So if we don't create something for them, they'll just continue using the throwaway culture 
products that they've used for 10, 20, 30 years. And so that's what we're trying to change. And then over time, we'll nurture those people into more sustainable behaviors. Amazing. Such a important business. And yeah, it's, it's, it certainly sounds like it's going really well. I mean, you, you're a seasoned founder now with lots of success behind you. So I'd love to know, what are you doing differently this time around? Or is it just kind of rinse and repeat in a slightly different space? Well, I went from having two co-founders in my first business to one in Skin and Me, and now I've got none in this one. And I think that is more reflective of just I've built up more experience. And so I have a clearer idea of what to do. And I'm in a different position now in terms of my ability to attract capital and talent to a company. And it also means that I can bring more of my own vision to life, you know, without sort of co-founder vision conflicts. And in this business, we're going after an even bigger TAM. You know, everyone needs to wash and stay hygienic. Basically, that's never going to change. And yeah, at this time, I didn't do the pre-seed round even that we did at Skin and Me. I just raised five million pounds right out the gate. We're basically setting this up to be, in the long run, a public company. We've got a very long-term vision with it. We want to create multiple brands under the life supplies umbrella. Yeah, it's an amazing opportunity. And I think you mentioned already the importance of talent, which is something that we as headhunters really believe in. And the vast majority of people that we're working with, whether it's from executives to you know future executives, want to work in a purpose-driven brand these days. It's the most commonly said phrase. And I think that's especially the case um, for startups that are doing good for the planet. We know that the climate crisis is the, the biggest challenge facing us all at the moment. So you talked a bit about the vision for, for live supplies, but for anyone that's really loving what they're hearing, why should they join you on this journey? And kind of how has that process been so far of, of attracting great talent? It's gone very well so far. People fall for our mission, they fall in love with the company, and we've got a high quality team and we've got more high quality people that want to join us. We are going to become the world's biggest consumer goods brand. The big players are moving far too slowly when it comes to sustainability. And we are quite jaded by the Save the Planet brands because they don't appeal to the mainstream customer. There are so many brands that just hang their hat on save plastic, save plastic. Yeah, like our mission is to pull the plug on UK bathroom plastic, but we don't want you to hit our website and see our products and just see, you know, pictures of trees and like everything is completely natural. And th the reality is the mainstream customer will try those brands out, but they won't stick to them for the next 30 years. And so to have massive impact, you need to appeal to the mainstream. So whether it's natural deodorant brands or shampoo bars, you know, they currently don't have mass market appeal. And our approach is going completely against the hood, I guess, because we have such belief in our product strategy of getting the everyday consumer to be slightly more sustainable as a starting point, not perfectly sustainable, not zero waste, not making soap in their kitchen. But if we get them into more sustainable behaviors and we build a brand that makes it exciting and fun and desirable to do so, we can then over time nurture them into more sustainable behaviors. But if you try to change people's behavior too quickly, it'll scare people away. Okay. And all we care about is having the most impact. And so lots of small changes adds up to the most meaningful impact. So I would say to anyone listening that's looking for a new role, join us or reach out to us if you care deeply about having a big impact and want serious ownership and want to develop fast and work with a 
you know, really experienced team in a fast-paced environment. We have a lot of fun. We've got a really amazing culture. Everyone's super committed to our mission. Awesome. The floodgates are about to open, James. So uh, I'm expecting lots of CVs to follow. I wanted to come back to to founder life and founders because I guess a lot of our audience are aspiring founders or early stage founders. And you seem to love being a founder. You've done it three times and it sounds like there's many other businesses that you've sort of tried in the background as well. And we've had loads of guests on this podcast that have been very honest that they you know, have huge conviction in the startup that they're building, but they will never do it again because it's been such a kind of roller coaster of emotions. You seem to be the opposite of that uh, because you've, you've obviously created multiple businesses. So what is it about entrepreneurship that you love so much? And how do you deal with those really difficult moments, the really challenging aspects of this journey? Like I've been on it for almost 11 years and there's definitely still days where I'm like, oh, I can't do this anymore. So how do you get through those moments? I don't have a magic bullet. I just know that I was born to create and I know what I love doing. I just love building companies and I love bringing great people together and going after bigger and bigger goals, basically. And I'll personally just never settle for a day if I don't think I've been pushing myself to my limits. And I don't want to look back in, I don't know, 50 or so years and think, oh, I actually didn't push myself to the max. And maybe I could have had a bigger impact. Maybe I could have had a bigger vision, maybe I could have got more done. And so it's in some ways a bit of a curse because I know that I'll do this until the day I die, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Even though, like you know, I mean, running a company is, <laughs> it's not always fun. In fact, it's glamorized quite often, much like the life of a poker player. But it is, didn't Elon Musk say something? It's like eating glass and staring into the abyss. I mean, it's a complete emotional roller coaster, and you know you have all of the pressure on you. But how do I get through the challenging times? I mean, you realize it's just part of the game. I've been through a lot, multiple crises, dealing with lots of situations that are deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> but as the CEO, you just have to deal with them. But it's the game, and you get used to it, and you realize that it will pass. You know, we had some great results just like two days ago we figured something out with one of our new products and our marketing had really started nailing it and that was really exciting and motivating for me and the whole team but i always know that there's going to be something just around the corner which will be really negative and that is the way it goes and so i guess you just get accustomed to that life and nothing will stop me Love it. And hopefully other founders listening to this who might be having one of those bad days will hear that and, you know, it will lift their spirits somewhat. Your LinkedIn says that British founders need to think bigger, which I think is really interesting. So do you mind sharing what you mean by that and what you would love the future of entrepreneurship to look like? We don't get many huge outcomes. It seems like the US gets them all. And so if you question why is that, I think that it largely comes down to culture. I think that there is less comfort with taking risk here. Whereas in the US, there's more encouragement to give it a shot and not worry so much about failure. And I've spent time in San Francisco, and I always leave every room, whether it's an, an event or a meeting, inspired to go bigger. Yet in London, it's quite the opposite. No one pushes me to think 10x. I, actually, I, I often think it's the other way around. I'm the one pushing other founders to think 10x. But I want to be surrounded by other people that are making me feel small-minded. And so I do feel there's a bit too much focus in the UK on where things can go wrong. And just back to my point earlier around what is my advice for fundraising, I think that if you act big from day one and you have really high conviction and you've got a massive TAM and 
you've got a defensible business model, just, you know, you've got a bold vision, you need a lot of money, and you need the very best talent. You can't get the best talent if you don't raise a lot of money. And you can't go after a big vision if you don't have a lot of money. And so, you know, I think there just needs to be more encouragement to do things that way. Like, why not raise, like I said, 200k and do nothing but hire an amazing team and then six months later go out to raise five to ten million and do it properly yeah it's really interesting i mean we've showcased some very successful bootstrap founders on this podcast and like i'm a bootstrap founder myself but there's definitely there's no denying that there's aspects of doing it that way that are very very challenging and i do think there's something to be said just as to the point earlier about how many founders I see that are so stressed because all they're doing is fundraising rather than actually work on business. I think, that's just, I think that's a really good takeaway from this episode. And I think it's it's really good advice. I also spoke to an early stage founder the other day who basically had been told by a VC they weren't going to invest because they didn't have a big enough long-term vision. So I think this is what you said there, I hope really chimes with anyone that's currently pitching because in this climate where it's harder than ever to to raise, yeah, you've got to think big and you need that conviction to really come across. Thanks so much for sharing that, James. We're recording this episode just weeks after the SVB event, which I'm sure everybody listening to this will will know about. So it does feel remiss not to at least mention it. And I know that you and your businesses were very exposed to SVB. So do you mind just sharing a little bit of your experience and, and just your learning from that very stressful weekend? It was a very stressful weekend indeed. Both of my companies banked solely with SVB. And so, and most of the money, almost all the money was in notice accounts. And so you couldn't get out of the notice accounts. There's no way. I mean, I tried everything. And so I went from that Thursday planning some really exciting initiatives for 2023 to the next day having to start work on a plan that would see the business through if we lost 95% of our money. And it's, you know, just actually, we were just talking about this, like the roller coaster of being an entrepreneur and the crisis that you have to deal with. And it was pretty damn soul destroying. I mean, it was just like, okay, we get this notice from notification from the Bank of England that they're going to put the bank into liquidation. And from my perspective, I mean, can you even reverse that? I mean, so the Saturday morning was such a dark morning for me and all my founder friends that were in the same situation. It was just like, okay, I mean, we're, it's like, let's say you bank as a consumer with Santander and you wake up one day and they're like, yeah, you are going to lose 95% of your money. And maybe you'll get like one to 2% back in a few months time, maybe a bit more, but you've got to wait six to 18 months. So the only thing that you can do is plan for the worst because it wasn't until frankly, the Sunday night that there were slight murmurings of a potential acquisition, but you don't peg any hope on that when you're in my position until you get absolute confirmation from an official body, which came through on the Monday morning. And so we were having to just plan for operating the business on a shoestring, then figure out how we're going to fund the business from there on. So it was... Yeah, I've never been so happy to celebrate the status quo <laughs> remaining the status quo after three days. Yeah, I can imagine. And for you, kind of the what's been the biggest learning from that terrifying experience? Yeah, because I'd imagine, I mean, one, probably not having everything in SBP or, or now HVC might be one of those learnings, but what can other founders learn from this experience? Yeah, I mean, having a much more de-risk treasury policy is definitely a solid learning. And don't put all of your money in notice accounts because if the the world is ending and the markets are all crashing, you can't get your money out. It's certainly brought 
the team um, closer together, I think, in particular, the individuals that were working through the weekends on emergency contingency planning. I think as much as you don't want any of these experiences to happen, they are quite a bonding experience. And you realize collectively that if you can get through that, if you can get through staying together and staying committed to your mission and forming a plan that you are genuinely about to activate the next morning, we were about to take the whole team through it. You know, a plan that is losing 95% of your money and still having to somehow make this thing work. As you can imagine, there's some pretty grim decisions you have to make, else you'll be out of money in, in no time. If you can get through that, you can get through anything. And so it gave us just a real spring in our step. And to be honest, in the last, how long has it been? Two, two and a half weeks? You can't upset me. Like that was such good news to get two Mondays ago. Uh, I'm still on a pretty natural adrenaline high. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but it's actually, as you say, it has a strange uh, way of bringing people together and giving you even more resilience for any future challenges that come up. So I guess that in a way is a, a weird upside of, of such an event. There was obviously some incredible collaboration. I mean, the, the outcome is is remarkable. We saw this coming together of startups, VCs, founder communities, which we're, we're, we're part of. The government, uh, you know, actually a rare thing to see uh, such collaboration working to such effect. There was loads going on behind the scenes. I know you, that you were very involved. Is there anything that you can share from your unique vantage point of that situation and any shout outs you want to give to any individuals? I was part of a group with some influential founders, investors, politicians, even in it. And it was just fascinating to see everyone club together to make as much impact as possible. Everyone was it's like we're all in this together. How can we change the narrative that's being put out in the media? And how can we get the right message to the influential people in the room that are about to decide our fate, frankly? And so there was so many people that played a pivotal role. Andy, the founder of Mentioned Me, that wrote this letter to Jeremy Hunt that we all signed, helped raise awareness. Dom Hallis, the director at um, Kodak, who was a really, really pivotal voice in just frankly, getting the right message and getting the deal done. Um, and yeah, I mean, too many, too many people to name, but it was a really like just warming few days in, in some ways because we were just all in this together. I've not really been through a collective crisis like that. I've normally just been through individual crises that are isolated to my company, but so many of us were just completely screwed, frankly. And so I, I just love the founding community and it really shows that everyone will be very selfless and help each other out in times of need. And I mean, what a great outcome in the end. An incredible outcome. Yeah, we, we've actually got Dom Hallis coming on the podcast soon. So uh, I can't wait to chat to him. Oh, I'm definitely listening to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. But thank you so much for sharing. And I think, um, you know, again, just as you say, an incredible outcome. And I think there's a, a lot of credit due to yourself and, and many of the people involved to have achieved such a such an important outcome. We're sadly at an end, James. I've, I've loved I've loved talking to you and hearing about your experience. But we're at our final three wrap-up questions. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Life Supplies? It will be a public company and it will make the most significant impact on reducing bathroom plastic in the UK. And in time, we'll move into the rest of the home. Love it. And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, he's alive. He's called Bernard Arnault. He's the founder of LVMH, the luxury conglomerate. And I 
I'm fascinated in his journey. I think he turned something like $15 million into $400 billion in a remarkably impressive amount of time. He made some big moves that were very atypical, and he leveled up so quickly. And I want to apply that same approach to what we're doing at Life Supplies and to the consumer goods industry. So I'd be picking his brain on how to do that. Amazing. And finally, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to pass on to our 40-minute mentor listeners? I'll go back to when I was really young and I was just starting out as an entrepreneur. Well, I mean, arguably that was in school, but I mean, post-uni and I was playing poker and on the side, I was playing around with different businesses. And I remember watching this one video you know how it is. We all see these motivational videos that pop up on TikTok or YouTube. And every now and then, one of them will make an impact. You know, if you see 30 of them a day or 50 of them, like over a week, they just go in one ear and out the other, frankly. But this one video was from this guy who was giving a talk to school kids and he was trying to motivate them. And the message was, as soon as you want to succeed as badly as you want to breathe, then you will be successful. And he gave this scenario where this you know, a guy wanted to be mentored by this successful businessman and he made him walk out into the water and he sort of held the younger guy's like head under the water and the guy thinks he's being drowned. And there's only one thing you're trying to do at that point, which is like get to the surface and breathe and survive. You're not thinking about going to watch the football. You're not thinking about chilling out and watching TV and whatever it is. And that frankly, really, I was working hard at the time. I wasn't working like you know, the absolute maximum that my body and mind were capable of. And that frankly kicked me into gear for like five, 10 years from there onwards. And yeah, I've got to give that video a lot of credit. Amazing. Oh, well, well, thank you very much, James, for sharing your story and mentorship with us all today. It's been a real pleasure. And I'm very excited to see what the future brings for Life Supplies. I, I love your mission. And uh, I, I hope lots of our listeners will go out and either send in their CV or become customers because it's, uh, you know, it's a really important mission. So very best of luck with it. Thank you, James. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I loved learning more about James's incredible career as an entrepreneur, and I can't urge you enough to check out his latest business, Life Supplies. We've left links in the show notes for you to check out. That's all from us today, but I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. So please don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform or drop us a note on info at jbmc.co.uk. We can't wait to hear from you. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.